Hey, Carl. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. in Washington, D.C. Yes. Welcome to the podcast, A Life in Biography. This is episode 62. Um, I don't know how long I can keep up with this. So far, plenty of material. <laughs> there is indeed many biographies out there. That's right. More than I can read and certainly more than I can write. Why don't we begin by your introducing yourself a bit uh, and telling us uh, how you got into the biography business? Oh, well, I started out, uh, you know, in my 20s uh, wanting to be a journalist. And I freelanced abroad in the Middle East and Asia and came back and eventually got it, landed a job as an assistant editor at The Nation magazine, you know, America's oldest weekly liberal magazine. Yes. And, uh, well, I did that for about five years, and then it sort of seemed like, oh, I thought, to, I said to myself, I should try to, isn't that what journalists try to do at some point? And, uh, you know, it was 1979, 80, uh, and we just had those long gasoline lines, uh, another energy crisis. And I thought, well, maybe I'd like to do something about uh, big oil and the Middle East, where I'd spent much of my childhood. And uh, <clears throat> I was trying to figure out a way to write about it. And in the course of doing a little research, uh, I stumbled across the name John J. McCloy, who was a lawyer, powerful Wall Street lawyer in New York, who uh, at the time was represent, still representing all 22 American oil companies. He was the only lawyer in the country who could um, do so. He had a waiver from the Attorney General, a, a waiver for antitrust so that the CEOs of all these oil companies could meet in his office once or twice a year uh, without violating antitrust and discuss among themselves their common negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis OPEC, the oil cartel. So this seemed like a terrific little way into writing about big oil in the Middle East. But then I realized that John McCloy had done all these other things. He'd been high commissioner in occupied Germany. He'd been assistant secretary of war during World War II. He'd been involved in the atomic bomb and the internment of the Japanese Americans. And so instead, <laughs> instead of a sort of book about big oil, I wrote a proposal for a biography of McCloy and sold it. And thought I'd spend about two years writing it. And 10 years later, <laughs> I was still writing it. It came out, it came out finally in 1992. And by then I you know, had fallen in love with history and the archives and biography. And I was essentially, my wife encouraged me to try to get a real job. <laughs> But I, I was no longer a, a working journalist. And uh, everyone said, well, you're not really, you don't really want another magazine or newspaper job, do you? You're going to go write another book. And so I, I, I was compelled to do so. And 
you know, so McCloy led to a biography of the Bundys and then the Bundys led me to um, a biography of Robert Oppenheimer when my friend Marty Sherwin invited me to join him on that project and, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> yes. Um, you, you, so you didn't say, uh, Mommy, I want to be a biographer. And no, <laughs> it didn't occur to me. I didn't I know that, it, that was the career. Just done that. <laughs> I think it's it's. Uh, I think biography is an acquired taste, even for biographers. Yeah, it's you know it's all consuming. Uh, Carl, I don't know how you how you have been so productive as a biographer. It, it is all consuming, and it's an obsession. And I began almost at the same time you did in 1979, um, writing a biography. I didn't think of John J. McCloy. My idea of a good subject was Marilyn Monroe. Wow, much sexier <laughs> project. <laughs> so, so very, very different uh, kind of person, although she had her own interests in politics and was certainly a part of the culture of the time. Um, well, let's talk about uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, your most recent biography. And my first question really is, why Jimmy Carter? Well, you know, I lived through his one-term presidency, um, and it seemed to be an important tipping point those four years between sort of the classic old deal, uh, New Deal, uh, FDR kind of liberalism and this conservative age of Reagan and the neoconservatives. And, and I always was, you know, I remember being frustrated at the time as a young editor at The Nation that Carter wasn't liberal enough. Um, and yet he turned out to be maybe this, this maybe he wasn't, conservative enough. I mean, the American people rejected him in 1980 and chose this uh, Hollywood movie actor, Ronald Reagan, because he was so much sunnier, I guess. Anyway, Carter always fascinated me, and I was curious to know, you know, what had propelled him into the White House and why he failed to win re-election in 1980. And so uh, after I was finishing my biography of McCloy um, in about 1990, I started thinking about Carter and I mentioned to Victor Navasky, the editor of The Nation, that I was interested in maybe exploring the idea of doing a presidential biography. I thought maybe that would sell more too. <laughs> yes. So he said, oh, Kai, the way to explore that is to go down to Atlanta and uh, write an article for me about what Carter's doing with his ex-presidency. So I did that. I always do what uh, Victor tells me to do. And uh, I, I spent two weeks down in Atlanta. I interviewed a bunch of his aides at the Carter Center that was just opening up and wrote a, a good 4,000-word piece, it became a cover for the magazine, on all the fabulous things that Carter was doing with his ex-presidency, good works, you know, trying to wipe out Guinea worm disease and habitat for humanity and all of that. 
But I, the experience convinced me that either I was the wrong guy to do Carter or uh, it, it was too early. And I say I was the wrong guy because I knew nothing about the South. And I realized that it was kind of a foreign country. And I knew nothing about Southern Baptists and that whole religious aspect of Carter's life. And I knew nothing really about race in America. I was, you know, I'd grown up outside of America as an expatriate. Um, and race clearly was really important in the South <laughs> and the North, but it was part of that history. And anyway, I, I, and I also realized that the archives his presidential papers were still largely closed in 1990. So I backed off, but I was still curious. I went on to other projects and, and in 2015, I sat down and wrote a proposal and sold it uh, to do a biography of Carter. And a couple of weeks later, he had this incredible press conference where he walked in and announced that he had brain cancer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, said that he probably had a few weeks to live. So I, I said, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm never going to have a chance to interview him. Well, as we all know, he, <laughs> there was a miracle, um, a miracle drug that uh, was used to eliminate his cancer. And he's still with us today. He's going to be turning 97 on October 1st. That's remarkable. So you get a contract for a biography of Jimmy Carter. So then what do you do? Well, I, I immediately went to the presidential library and, and dug in, you know, to the archives and went box by box and folder by folder, taking pictures on my iPhone. That's how they do it these days. I think I, over the period of off and on, I, several trips, but a total of maybe five or six months in, in the archive, I copied about over 20,000 pages. Hmm. Carter memos, letters. And, and uh, then I began, you know, doing interviews and I saw him. Uh, you know, he was willing to sit down for interviews, but he was very impatient with them. He was a tough interview too. He's, you know, he's still very sharp into his nineties and really actually kind of intimidating. Um, you know, he's a highly intelligent guy, very well read. He's, he's, you know, authored himself over 30 books. Yes. Um, and, uh, he, the interviews weren't that helpful, but actually in my very first interview, I fortunately asked him a question about his personal lawyer, a guy named Charlie Kerbo, who had been with him since 1962 when he first ran for state Senate in Georgia. And Charlie Kerbo was a key to understanding Carter. I knew he was important. He was sort of a behind the scenes advisor sort of a man very much like John McCloy, actually, a, a sort of grand vizier who was uh, whispering in the ear of the governor and then the president. And I knew he had, was, had frequently written Carter met long memos and letters about with his advice. But I, could, I told Carter in that first interview that I couldn't find any of these papers. 
there was very little of Kerbo in his presidential library. And this got his attention. Those sharp blue eyes sort of lit up and he uh, turned to his aide who was sitting there and said, well, Steve, we've got to find these papers. And indeed, three days later, uh, his aide called me and said, we found them in the attic of his, of Kerbo's widow. Kerbo had died 20 years previously. And <clears throat> there are five cardboard boxes of memos and correspondence that Kerbo had actually gone into the White House and retrieved, you know, after the 1980 election when Carter was defeated. So they, they weren't in, in the archives, they weren't part of Carter's papers, and they were sitting in this attic. Well, I, they fortunately, Carter and, and his people fortunately decided to give me first access to this material since I had asked about it. And six months later, I was found myself pouring through these boxes and it was just a treasure trove of material where you can see Kerbo um, giving advice to Carter on how to win the governorship in Georgia in 1970, how to run as a progressive populist, but at the time, at the same time, willing to sort of send signals to the white rural working class voters that he was one of them. But at the same time, he could walk into a black church and feel very comfortable speaking their language. Uh, and then, you know, Kerbo was, and his papers gave me a really good insight into the, many of the decision the decisions made during the White House years. So it was it was a great find, and it, it I think is one of the key aspects of my research that is sort of a new contribution to the literature. I think that's right. Um, when I when I was reading your biography, uh, I didn't a story uh, about the Kerbo Papers, and I had uh, recently reviewed Jonathan Alter's biography of Jimmy Carter, which I thought was very good. And as I started to read your biography, and the more I learned about Kerr, I thought, "Wait, this is new. Uh, I don't, I don't remember all this detail from the other biography." So I think it makes a, a huge difference uh, the kind of sources the biographer has access to, and how you find them. In other words, another biographer uh, might not have found this, might not have asked Jimmy Carter the right question, uh, and that material might be in somebody's attic yeah it's a, it's a really good lesson about a biography when people say oh well this figure's been done or that figure's been done uh it happened to me with amy lowell uh biographers for decades uh, treated her as if she had no love life uh and uh i found her love in the massachusetts historical society of all places uh an archive turned up some material that that really changed the view uh for me of what Amy Lowe was like and what she was capable of. So I think that, that you know, that, that, that sense of investigation of inquiry, even when you're maybe interviewing somebody and you might think you're not getting something out of them, then something like um, your question about Kerbo comes up. The other thing I wanted to say about Kerbo is he reminds me in some ways of a character, is very Shakespearean, uh, in Coriolanus. 
uh, Menenius Agrippa, who's Coriolanus's advisor. Coriolanus, uh, for those who know the play, is a very stubborn character who doesn't want to take advice from anybody mm-hmm. uh, and who, who has been victorious all his life and thinks he's a self-contained person. And there are political pressures in the play, including the uh, the tribunes the uh, who uh, are sort of the left flank, so to speak, the tenacity in the play, uh, if you would have it. And that becomes a big drama biography of course oh yeah absolutely yeah carter is very much a stubborn kind of personality and uh completely self-confident in his own judgment and intelligence and uh you know he he managed in his presidency to uh precisely because he always was trying to sort of do the right thing regardless of the political consequences he systematically sort of uh, uh, alienated some of the key constituencies that had helped to get him into the White House, and that included the Ted, Ted Kennedy wing of the Democratic Party. Um, it's a it's a it's a fascinating insight into the, the sort of the tensions and dynamics of politics, the the way that. that uh, uh, Carter read Teddy Kennedy. Uh, he wasn't at all dazed by the Kennedy myth or legend, uh, and in some ways, I think that's well. He he, you know, he he took on that primary challenge when Ted challenged him. And on the other hand, uh, almost again like Corey, um, uh, his view of the opposition is uh, diminished. Uh, he he thinks he's diminished it. That he he doesn't realize the ramifications or consequences of that conflict. Exactly, yeah. No, he, and you know, he had this terrible dispute with Kennedy over healthcare. And you know, they were both liberals. They were both in favor of national health insurance. Um, And Carter, if he'd had the votes and the budget, he would have favored a single payer system which is what Kennedy wanted. But when he got into office, he looked at the fed- rising federal deficit and he looked at the votes in the House and the Senate in particular and decided that Kennedy didn't have the votes for his bill. So he proposed a compromise, a sort of not universal health insurance, but universal catastrophic health insurance that would cover you know, large large bills of, of, of a crisis nature for any American family. And that, of course, would have been an enormous foot in the door towards a national health insurance system. But Kennedy rejected the compromise. And so did the uh, trade unions, big labor, AFL, CIO, and auto workers. And, and you know, Carter could see that Kennedy was using this issue uh, he thought just opportunistically to f- find something to run on against him and to try to seize the Democratic nomination. It became this Shakespearean tra- tragedy and struggle. To uh, and you know Kennedy eventually was defeated by Carter. Carter was could sometimes be politically ruthless. And he was determined to, quote, whip Kennedy's ass. And he yeah. did. But it came at a, a considerable cost. 
and he, he was very weakened politically going into the general election. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you know, if you were writing a just a political book about Carter, I think conclusions might be different. Uh, I mean, some people just write him off because he is a one-term president and didn't win re-election. Uh, on the other hand, a biography can really get at the nuances. You know, the things that he did and the person he was uh, that other kinds of and other kinds of genres really can't get at. Absolutely. That's the power of biography. So, you know, I really worked hard to try to place the reader in the Oval Office to, so that you can sort of see like you're, you're looking at Carter over his shoulder and seeing how he makes decisions and the pressures he's under and the atmosphere. And, you know, he, he was surrounded by very young aides, Jody Powell and Hamilton Jordan, Landon Butler, uh, you know, a bunch of Georgia boys. Um, and, you know, coming back to the biographer's quest, uh, you know, I, I interviewed one of these aides, Landon Butler, who's still around to this day. And Landon sort of uh, volunteered that he had a diary himself. <laughs> and, and, and lo and behold, a few weeks later, it arrives in the mail. And it's an incredible diary with he Landon Butler was the number one aide to Hamilton Jordan. So who was Carter's, you know, political advisor throughout the four years. And you, know, you could see Landon's personal comments, his, you know, frustration at times, his uh, enthusiasm, you know, the ups and downs of the presidency are reflected in this diary. Likewise, I, I once interviewed on the phone one of Carter's speechwriters, Jerry Doolittle, uh, who's a wonderful character. And, and But this Jerry, by this time, was well into his 80s, and it wasn't a very good interview. Um, I spent about 40 minutes on the phone with him. And, and But fortunately, at the end of the interview, I said, well, Jerry, you know, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for talking to me. Um, by the way, do, you know, if, if you have any old photographs or letters in your closet, you know, please think of me. And um, there's a long pause. And he says, well, actually, I have a diary. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, I persuaded him to send it to me. And this diary is like 180 pages, neatly typed, and it covers the first two years of the White House year. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was sort of a fly on the wall. He was able to give me all sorts of details that, um, as you say, allow the biographer to provide a really intimate portrait of Carter the man, not just the politician. Uh, so you know, this is this is the biographer's quest. You've got yes, you've got to ask. <laughs> I, I I love the uh, the conflicts between uh, Brzezinski and Vance, uh, and how um, boy, what a bold character Brzezinski was. Oh, uh, yeah. and w what I like about your presentation is we can see all this, uh, 
And the reader, you know, when someone's reading a biography, they, they may very well make judgments. You know, I think most of the time Vance was right uh, and Brzezinski was wrong. Um, but you don't say that. You don't have to say that. Uh, you let the whole story play out, I think. I feel the same way about the hostage rescue. Mm -hmm. I don't see how any, in any way that mission could have succeeded. There were just too many moving parts to it. And you describe all those moving parts and you describe Vance's reservations about it. But again, you don't step in. You don't have to tell the reader what to think of that. Yeah, exactly. I just describe uh, what was taking place from, you know, in the often in the words of the, the actors from their diaries or memos. And, and it, you know, you really, you feel like you're there and it's agony to to watch jo uh, Carter learn about the fate of the uh, helicopter rescue mission. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, you feel for the poor guy, you know, he, he was sort of, he resisted using any kind of military force throughout the long hostage crisis, uh, which became more and more politically damaging, but he, he just, he did not want to do anything that would risk the lives of the hostages. He wanted them all to come home safe and sound. And Brzezinski was like just relentless in nagging him to mm -hmm. do something to look tough. To uh, And finally, you know, well into the spring of 1980, um, as he's battling off the Kennedy challenge for the nomination, Brzezinski finally, you know, the after the negotiations with the Iranians break down once again. And, you know, they were trying every avenue, every possible avenue to influence Khomeini or his people. And uh, finally, after in, in early April, when negotiations again fell through, uh, Brzezinski finally persuaded Carter to authorize a a helicopter rescue mission. And as you say, it was a really complicated plan and too many moving parts. And if they'd actually, if the helicopters hadn't failed as two of them did, and they had actually gotten their rescue troops into the heart of Tehran, I, I fear it would have been an even bigger disaster. You know, yeah. Some of the hostages would have been killed, probably, and many Iranians, civilians, and some of the rescuers. It was, it would have been a disaster. But Brzezinski was hot to trot and just nagged the president into doing this. Um, and of course, Vance uh, resigned over the whole affair. That was the pretext. He had, by that time, Vance was just very frustrated and discouraged with. Uh, battling off Brzezinski's uh, relentless attacks upon him and his his views, you know, they Brzezinski and Vance were just two opposites, and Brzezinski saw the world entirely through the eyes of uh, of a sort of aristocratic Polish. Um, American who just hated the Russians and saw every every issue in foreign policy 
through the prism of the Cold War and our rivalry with the Soviet Union. And Vance had a much more sophisticated and nuanced view of the world. And Carter shared this worldview with Vance. And so he constantly was rejecting the advice that Brzezinski was giving him and siding with Vance. And yet I, I couldn't, this is one of the mysteries, I couldn't understand why Carter put up with Brzezinski for so long. And I tell a story, for instance, at one point they had, you know, really vociferous arguments over all sorts of issues. And one day, Brzezinski, after one of these arguments, stomps out of the Oval Office and goes back to his office in the West Wing. And a few minutes later, Carter's secretary, Susan Plough, comes in and ostentatiously hands Brzezinski a green envelope, uh, green stationery, which signifies that this is a handwritten message from the president. Uh, only the green stationery is used for handwritten notes. And so Brzezinski opens it up, and it's a note from Jimmy Carter saying, Dears Big, don't you know when to stop? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, oh, my God. They yeah. Carter, I asked him, why did you put up with Brzezinski? And, you know, he was so obnoxious and relentless and, and wrong often. And Carter said, well, you know, I enjoyed uh, arguing with him. I enjoyed having new ideas thrust at me, you know, and Zbig would come up with a hundred ideas every day and I'd have to reject, you know, 98 or 99 of them, but uh, he was entertaining. And yeah, <laughs> I, I was, I was in uh, Poland uh, Fulbright in 19, 19- and there was a Polish joke. The joke was, uh, we have our man in Washington. We have our man in Rome. Now all we need is our man in Moscow. <laughs> okay. Didn't quite turn out that way, but uh, ultimately the empire did collapse. <laughs> so um, is about Jimmy Carter, after all your research uh, that surprised you, well, yes, uh, you know, you know, the public perception of Jimmy Carter is um, that this is a guy who is a humanitarian, a do-gooder, liberal, maybe a little fuzzy, and yet you know jimmy carter you know it's clear it's clear to me after 6 years of research on this that this is a guy who is actually very tough and determined and um really very very focused on what he wants to accomplish and this uh, you know it's a mystery to me how he he won the presidency, coming from this small town in Plains, Georgia, coming out of nowhere, really. But he's very driven, and he knew what it was going to take to win, and he was willing to do it. 
And uh, anyway, well, he's a very tough guy. <clears throat> well, you, you didn't interview me uh, for your biography, and there's no reason you should have. But I can tell you that when he was running for president, I think because uh, I had contributed once to the campaign, I got a mailing mm. uh, from Jimmy Carter. Uh, not me, obviously, but campaign mail. Uh, and he told a story about himself, his background and who he was, that I found just so appealing, so refreshing, as I think you know, millions of voters did in, in the primaries and, and then in the election. There was something about him that touched a nerve. Uh, this, was, this was not your politician and that career in the Navy, and his you know, expertise, your engineer, um, the, all of that somehow um, presented a very different kind of persona, I think, to me and to a lot of the American people. And that's that's probably been forgotten because he didn't, wasn't reelected and because he, he had this post-president and, and so on that, that you know, provided a different picture of him. But he was very different at the time. Yeah, he was sort of a breath of fresh air in the wake of Watergate and the Vietnam yes. War. And, and, you know, he ran on his integrity. He ran as the man, not as the politician. And um, all of that at the time in 1976 was rather appealing. Yes. Uh, and i ask you one more question, uh, because I'm a Faulkner biographer. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> One of his favorite authors was William Faulkner. And and for good reason, you know, he, he was a Southerner and Faulkner writes about the South in a way that, you know, was very appealing and moving to Carter. Um, and actually this becomes one of the themes of the book. I'm, you know, I was very glad to see your biography of Faulkner and, and, uh, and one of my chapters is entitled uh, The Past is Never Dead. That's right. <laughs> and uh, one of the themes that I sort of uh, managed to sort of pick at uh, that emerges in, in the narrative is that Carter is, is very much a Southerner, a white Southern liberal who uh, is very much aware of the history and the culture of the South, and therefore understands defeat. You know, he, and that's one of the things I sort of realized about South Georgia. If you grow up in, in a place like that, you're surrounded by reminders of the Civil War and the defeat. And so yeah. this, gives you, this gave Carter a sort of pragmatism and a down to earth, um, understanding of the complexity of the world that not that you know not everything is going to end well and that there are indeed limits and this is an important aspect of his character and and uh, so when he becomes president he uh, you know he he has this hope of being you know as being the first president elected from the deep south to that perhaps his presidency can help to heal the nation once again, not only of Watergate and the Vietnam era, but on the issue of race. 
And, you know, he's, this is another paradox of Jimmy Carter. He comes from this very segregated racist society. His father is a believer in white supremacy, but his mother is not. Miss Lillian is the influence on Carter that explains, I think, his, his progressive attitude on race. But it was, it was his, you know, he used his presidency to try to um, advance uh, equality between the race did all these African-American judges to the federal bench and, and many other appointments in his administration. And yet, in the end, the South turns around and rejects him, precisely because, I think, of his position on race. Yeah, it's very this extraordinary. Is, this is a great tragedy. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, his, it's a very Faulknerian uh, yeah. story. And Carter... Well, he, yes, he, he apparently uh, liked to read aloud Faulkner to his boys as they were growing up. So it was a, a heavy influence on his whole attitude. Yeah, for sure. So is, is, there, is there another subject to do another biography? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Quite <laughs> frankly, I'm, I'm kind of exhausted at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I do, you know, my wife points out to me that I do now have a, a real job uh, as the director of Leon Levy Center. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I could pay more attention to that. And, and, but, uh, you know, biography is compelling. And even my wife now thinks that I'll be unhappy if I don't find another project soon. Yeah. Uh, I'll be right. So, what do you think of this? I'm, I, I'm, I'm vaguely thinking, very tentatively. How about a, a biography of Roy Cohen? Oh yes, yes, yeah. I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, it would it's cover funny. the McCarthy era. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's, oh, the mafia, his his role with the mafia in the '60s and '70s, and then of course his influence on one Donald Trump in the '80s. Yeah, it's a it's a tremendous. You know, there's been a biography, but it's time for another one. You know, uh, Nicholas von Hoffman did yeah. one years ago. That was a good that, book. But it, it was a good 1988. Yeah, just just after Cohn died. Yeah. And it's all based on interviews, and but I don't know if there are any papers. I don't either. I would think again, given your skills in terms of asking people, where are they? Where, where is the stuff? <laughs> I think you're likely to, you know, find some things. If not, if he left no papers, he probably was kind of careful to cover some tracks. But there's his tentacles reach so deep into the system. Uh, that I would think there'd be plenty there for a biography. Well, maybe, maybe. You know, I had to write about Roy Cohn a little bit in this Carter biography. Yes. Because he he was the guy who sort of got Hamilton Jordan into hot water. Uh, Cohn was re representing uh, the owners of Studio 54 who were being charged with tax fraud and sort of in an effort to get them off he persuaded them to sign an affidavit saying that Hamilton Jordan had sniffed cocaine in his, in Studio 54, 
And this led to a whole special prosecutor investigation and poor Hamilton Jordan had to spend $150,000 legal fees, but the grand jury, you know, eventually unanimously voted not to indict him because it was all made up. It was just Roy Cohen and his dirty lawyering. Yeah. Uh, An incredible story, but. Well, you've already got material. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I just don't know if I can wake up every morning and face Roy Cohn. <laughs> like, ah, I, I guess, yeah, it's kind of like doing a biography of Darth Vader. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, it depends on how you respond to something like that. Is there anything else I should have asked you? Well, it, I don't know. We, we've covered a lot of the foreign policy stuff and... Uh, I think, you know, the bottom line is that I'd like people to come away from reading this biography and suddenly realizing that, well, he's a complicated guy and and maybe at times not the most effective politician, but he actually accomplished uh, an incredible amount of, of legislation. He passed more laws than certainly Bill Clinton or even Obama. Uh, he changed, uh, he deregulated the American airline industry, which allowed middle-class Americans to fly for the first time. He gave us even, you know, boutique beer uh, yes. by deregulating out the alcohol industry. And uh, he gave us seatbelts and airbags and expanded food stamps for the poor and, you know, passed the Panama Canal Treaty and... negotiated the Camp David Accords, taking Egypt off the battlefield for Israel. And yet he got, somehow he never got much political credit for any of these things and uh, was defeated because I think of the Iran hostage crisis and the Kennedy challenge and so it's it's a great Shakespearean tragedy in my view. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Carl. Thank you, Carl, for having me. Oh, this you're welcome. And this will be post. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.